right, take your Bibles tonight and turn to Psalm 69. While you're turning to Psalm 69, this is a little new to me to be preaching to an empty room, but I am thankful that you're tuning in. It's just the sound people here and a skeleton crew, but a couple of prayer requests and prayer reminders before we get started here in Psalm 69. First of all, keep praying for Dwayne and Eloise Cruz. Dwayne is still in the hospital recovering from uh, broken a broken leg, so I'll pray for him, that he'll heal quickly. And uh, praise the Lord for the Pankinen family. They've been sick, but they have tested negative for the COVID virus, but they're recuperating from illness, and I think um, she is expecting a baby within a, a few weeks, so pray for that family if you would. And then uh, from our family, pray for our kids and grandkids that they'll stay well and that they'll stay employed because we've got several nieces and nephews and grandkids that are starting to uh, look for other jobs because they got laid off in the job they were in. Also, before we get started, remember to please put prayer requests and praise items on the comments section. If you would do that, we'd appreciate it so much, and Pastor and I can look over those items. Psalm 69 is an imprecatory psalm, and that's a psalm where David is looking for a vengeance out on his against his enemies and against those that are against him. We want to look specifically at verse number 30 tonight for just a couple minutes. Verse number 30, right in the middle of this really heavy, heavy psalm, he's got an unusual verse. He says, I will praise the name of God with a song, and I will magnify him with thanksgiving. Right in the middle of this trouble that he's in. If you go to the first part of Psalm 69, he says, Lord, save me, for the waters are come into my soul. Verse 2, I sink in deep mire. I am coming to deep waters. Verse 3, I am weary of my crying. Verse 4, they that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies, are mighty. And on and on it goes. We see the word reproach or reproaches mentioned six times. If you go to verse 7, For thy sake I have borne reproach. Now the idea of reproach here is that uh, he feels disgraced, he feels rebuked, and he feels blamed. And David says in verse 7, he says, For thy sake I have been blamed, I have borne reproach. In verse 9, For the zeal of thine house is eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee. We see it two more times. We see it again in verse 10. When I wept when I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that was to my reproach. We see it again in verse, in not in verse 17, but in verse 7, the psalmist writes, For I am in trouble, hear me speedily. We see reproach again in verse 19, Thou hast known my reproach. And we see it again in verse 20, Reproach hath broken my heart. So in the middle of all this, in the middle of all these trials that he's having, uh, David is very troubled and he's out of place, just like the verse is out of place. David is in the midst of many troubles here, and yet he says, I will praise the name of God with song, and I will magnify him with thanksgiving. Paul and Silas, when they were in prison, they sang songs. And Paul and Silas had just been beaten, they had just been locked up and lost their freedom. They probably thought of this particular verse as they were in prison. 
And you know, you and I, in the midst of our troubles, there's lots of troubles today. You and I should learn this verse right in the middle of all our troubles. We should praise God's name with a song. We should magnify him with thanksgiving. Because what happens when we feel defeated and we feel troubled, self-pity starts to take over. We start singing, woe is me. Uh, we start thinking that nobody understands my particular dilemma. And uh, we think that we're all alone. And that shouldn't be the case. We should learn to practice verse 30. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. Three things there were taught. Sing praises to him in song. Set him on high and magnify him to others. And have a thankful spirit. I really believe we can thank your way. You can thank your way out of trouble. If you start saying thanks in your troubles, you'll find that God will give you the grace to handle those troubles. And so in closing, at least for my part here tonight, when you're in the middle of a storm and you think people don't care and you think you're all alone, try magnifying him with your whole heart and soul and make him larger, not only to your own self, but make him larger to others around you. Magnify him, thank him, and just keep trusting him. Romans 8.28 is still true. It's still in the Bible. And those that love him can know that all things will work together for good. So that's my challenge for tonight. Verse number 30 of Psalm 69. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. Amen. Thank you. Another thought that I'd like to share with that about the magnifying of the Lord. You know, when we use a magnifying glass on a piece of our magnifying, uh, yeah, the little round magnifying glass on a piece of paper or whatever, uh, we're not changing anything there. We're not changing who God is when we magnify him. We're making him evident and we're showing what he really is. So that's uh, a blessing. Thank you for that. Luke chapter 3 is where we're at tonight. We're talking about John's baptizing. We've spent several weeks now uh, because it's a very important thing to be discussing exactly what John's baptism means and uh, the different types of baptism in the Bible. This helps us to understand exactly what we are, uh, what we're still involved with today, even in the local church. But uh, I'm glad you're uh, tuning in tonight. If you're watching this, I appreciate that. Maybe it's later for some and you're grabbing this uh, at, an, at an off time, but we're grateful for you. And uh, I certainly uh, echo, Pastor, it's not ideal I enjoy the time we have together, but uh, I am glad that we can spend this time uh, through the airwaves. And it looks like probably it'll be a few more weeks that we'll be doing this at least, and so pray, pray for that uh, to, as it continues, that this would be resolved quickly, as I'm sure it will be eventually. But we, we examine John's baptism. Now, there are two baptisms that John was involved with uh, of the three in the New Testament. There are three types of baptism. Uh, there is the baptism of the repenter, there is the baptism of the Redeemer, and there's the baptism of the redeemed. John was involved with the first two, uh, the baptism of the repenter and the baptism of the Redeemer, uh, but he was not involved in the last, which is the one we are involved with, the baptism of the redeemed. Uh, we see, we looked at last week the baptism of the crowd, or the baptizing of the crowd, and uh, the meaning of bap John's baptism, just as a reminder, is repentance. That was his type of baptism. The Bible tells us this in Luke chapter 3, verse 3, and he came into the, all the country about Jordan preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And last week we looked at the four groups that John spoke to specifically, and I want to just 
just to recap this a little bit to get us back into the context of when he baptizes Jesus Christ, which is our uh, focus tonight. But he talked to the religious leaders, he talked to the regular people, he talked to the revenue collectors, and then he talked to the Roman soldiers. To the religious leaders, he gave the strongest message of any of them. And I think that's interesting, because that's exactly what Jesus Christ did when he started preaching. He preached harder to the religious leaders than he ever did to the sinners. He preached harder to the Pharisees than he did to the prostitutes. And it's interesting to me, because uh, the Pharisees were such hard unbelievers, and so they deserved, really, this type of message. John spoke of their character when he called them, O generation of vipers. Now, he's not the only one to call this holier-than-thou, uh, arrogant, self-righteous, hypocritical group uh, by these strong names. Jesus did the same thing in Matthew chapter 23. He calls them, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers. How can ye escape the damnation of hell? And so they spoke very plainly to these religious leaders. Not only that, he talked about their fruits worthy of repentance. John saw right through the hypocrisy of these Pharisees, and Jesus did too. In Matthew 23, uh, he used the words hypocrite and hypocrisy eight times while he's speaking to these people. They were strong on talk, but they were weak on walk. Jesus said that they do, as they, they do not as they say, or they do, do as they say, but not as they do. I'm sorry. Uh, so he says in Matthew 23, 3, for they say and do not. What a tragic thing to be said about anybody. All of us as Christians, our walk ought to match our talk. Now, your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. And so remember to match those two up. Whatever we say, our walk ought to match that. The Pharisees did not do so. That's why Jesus called them a hypocrite. He spoke of their condemnation. He said to begin not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham our father. They believed that being the descendant of Abraham was all that was necessary for them to enter heaven. It was a physical relationship that they trusted, not a spiritual relationship. But John would have none of that. And John delivers the message that God had him to give. And he tells them, listen, it's not who your dad was. It's not who your forefathers was, not who your mom was. It is your relationship with Jesus Christ. And so he spoke to the religious leaders. He also spoke to the regular people. Luke chapter 3, verse 10, and the people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? These were the regular people. This was the ordinary citizen. This was John Q. Public, you could say. When they came, when they came to be baptized by John, they asked the question, what shall we do? They were sincere, and this is a good thing. Uh, they, this is seen in their question. By the way, the Pharisees never asked, what shall we do? They weren't sincere, but these people were. But they were also selfish. This is their besetting sin. Because of what John said, and let's read here, by the way. I, I guess we should go ahead and read the, the scripture so we know what we're talking about here. But reading in uh, verse number 7, Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned thee you to flee from the wrath to come. This is Luke chapter 3, now verse 8. Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Now, we're in verse 10. We're talking about the people here. They asked, what shall we do? He answereth and said unto them, verse 11, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none, and that he hath meat, let him do likewise. Now, remember, John is talking to these different people, and he's telling them what will be evidence of their repentance. Remember, baptism that John did here was a baptism of repentance. And so he is making it 
very important in letting them know how important it is that they would have fruits to show that repentance. That means that a repentance is a change of behavior. So when John tells them to do one thing, you know that they're doing the very opposite thing. So the besetting sin of this group was selfishness. They ignored the needs of those around him. This is a sin typical of the general public. And John wanted to change their thinking. That is repentance. And uh, then he talked to the revenue collectors. He uh, told them to be honest and not to overcharge people on their taxes. Now we know, again, just as a reminder, this will not save anyone. But John is not yet uh, specifically preaching the baptism of salvation through the cross. He is teaching repentance. And they needed to change from their sinful ways. And so the issue here is not whether or not their works will save them, but that their works are a, an evidence of repentance. The issue is that giving outward proof of an inward character change. I would say tonight, friends, that our testimony is vitally important. The way that you live in front of other people, your testimony to your neighbors, your friends, your co-workers is vitally important because what that says about us is what type of person we are. If we're a Christian, we ought to be the hardest working, the most honest, the one with the most integrity on the job site because as God's children, we should have evidence or fruit of repentance. He fourthly talks to the Roman soldiers. Now, this was a surprise uh, because you certainly don't expect a Roman soldier uh, to be interested in, in what John was preaching, but they were. And uh, they asked him also what to do, verse 14. And the soldiers uh, likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. So uh, he talks to them about their savage treatment of others, their slanderous accusations, and then their salary discontentment there and of course these were the problems these soldiers dealt with but I would venture to say that many people even today uh, deal with those things right there the way that we treat other people uh, the slanderous accusations or the gossip that we're involved in and then uh, discontent in the things that we have and so these are common problems even today and John demanded evidence of a repentance that be proven by their actions and this begs a question that we closed with last week. Do we have in our life the evidence of repentance? If you went to court for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If they polled your friends and your neighbors and your co-workers and they brought them in as witnesses to this trial, uh, would they give witness that you were a Christian and that you were a child of God? This is what John was stressing, the fruits of repentance. Now... We come tonight to the baptism of Jesus Christ. Uh, it, now, look, look at verse number 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, which is the son of Heli. So we see here the baptism of John. I also want to go over to Matthew chapter 3. If you have your Bibles tonight, I encourage you as you tune in to us in the evenings here to have your Bible handy. Uh, I hope that you're being faithful in your daily Bible reading. It's so important here. But I want to look, if you would, at verse number 14 of Matthew chapter 3. and uh, Or let's start at verse 13. 
Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me. And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And so we see that when he first came to get baptized, by the way, this would be the most significant baptism of John's very short career in his ministry, the baptism of Jesus Christ. Of course, the person being baptized is what, and, and what happened during that baptism is what set this baptism apart. This baptism was a momentous event. It began the public ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus had lived in Nazareth ever since he was, had returned from Egypt as a child, about three years of age. And now he was about 30 years of age, the Bible tells us, and the time for his public ministry has begun. So he leaves his home in Nazareth. He comes about 75 miles south to find John to be baptized. Now, there's a protest from John. When he first came, John objected. Uh, again, we see in verse 14, John forbade him. Can you imagine forbidding the Lord Jesus Christ? But he does so. I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me. Now, let's not be too hard on John. Uh, this shows his humility. Now, you remember by now, John is quite the character. He's got crowds thronging him. Whenever he gets up to preach on a hill or on a knoll or on a large rock, He's got hundreds, if not thousands of people coming to hear him. He was very famous in Jerusalem and in all Judea. He had big crowds. People were coming from all over to hear him. Now, that kind of fame could go to a person's head. It could destroy the best of men, but not John. When in the presence of Jesus, he saw himself inferior. He said, I have need to be baptized of thee. Can I tell you tonight, dear friend, that the most spiritual person will be the most humble person. The person that's closest to God will be the one uh, that feels most his own inadequacies. Those who serve the Lord the best are the ones who bow the lowest before him. Oh, I encourage you, friend, tonight, as you grow in your walk with Jesus Christ, you'll find, uh, as even John did, that the, great, the truly great men and women are humble uh, before God. But not only do we see the humble humility of John, we see the holiness of Christ. Remember, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It involved the confession of sins. We saw this in the last few weeks. So in objecting Christ's baptism, John is really saying, now there's no need, Jesus, for you to be baptized. This is a baptism of repentance. And so understandingly so, John's saying, this baptism isn't for you. There's nothing you have to repent of. And this was true. Christ was sinless. He was the holy son of God. He was the one without blemish and without spot, 1 Peter 1.19. Therefore, he had no need for repentance. So in a way, John did have very good reason to hesitate to baptize Jesus. So that was his protest. Now, look at, though, the purpose of the baptism. Jesus said in verse 15, he says, suffer it to be so now, for this is it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, that statement that Jesus made is the key to understanding his baptism, which, quite frankly, has been a puzzle to many people uh, throughout the ages. The reason for the confusion is the character of John's baptism and the character of Christ's person. John's baptism was one of repentance. 
Christ had no need to repent. The two do not seem to belong together. John's baptism uh, specifically dealt with changing your mind about your sin, and Jesus had no sins from which to repent. And so it seems totally unnecessary for him. But this is really good what Jesus says when he gives his purpose for his baptism. His baptism was to symbolically show why he had come to earth. Now, why did Jesus come to earth? The answer is found in 1 Timothy 1.15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Aren't you glad for that? Aren't you uh, thankful and grateful that the Lord Jesus Christ came to die on the cross of Calvary. He took the place of sinful men. He not only died a sinner's death, but he was buried and then resurrected the third day. Being baptized by John symbolizes this truth in two different ways. Number one, it shows Christ's identification with sinful man. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. So in being baptized by John, Jesus is symbolically putting himself in the place of sinful man. He identifies himself with them. Even on the cross, the Bible says in Mark 15, 28, he was numbered with transgressors. In being baptized by John, Jesus took the place of sinful men to bring about man's righteousness. Look what he says. Suffer it now to be so, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Stop and think about that for a moment tonight. Folks, there's nothing we can do to become righteous. There's absolutely no way that we can live our lives in such a way that God can look on us in our sinful condition and say that person is righteous. There's no way that can happen except one way. For Jesus to take our place in our sinful condition, to die for us, to be our sin, even though he knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Hallelujah for the Lord Jesus Christ's work. Number two, it shows what Christ would experience for sinful men. It symbolically betrayed. Baptism did. Again, we have set, I think, in stone. We've made it very clear. Uh, the no numerous reasons in the Bible that Jesus' baptism was by immersion. So he went down into the water, was lifted back up, much the way that you, if you have gotten baptized, were baptized. So uh, this portrayed his death, burial, and resurrection. This is the foundation of man's salvation. All this is highlighted in that Little word, thus, in Jesus' statement. Suffer it now to be so, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. The Greek word uh, for thus means in a like manner, in a similar way. In other words, Jesus is saying, this is a picture of what I'm going to do. In baptizing Jesus, John would symbolize what he was going to do for us. This is what would fulfill, or we could say complete, all the righteousness that man needed for his salvation. In the place of the sinner, in your place and in my place, Jesus would suffer death. He would suffer in a way that nobody has ever suffered before. Suffer rejection from the Father himself. And then he would die and be buried and rose again to be our Redeemer. Aren't you grateful for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ? And so he said, John, do it. Suffer it to be so. For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. In a beautiful act of submission, John did so. The Bible says he suffered him. He listened to what he said, and he baptized Jesus. In fact, 
I love the, the wording here, how, how quickly it happened. It says in verse number 15, after Jesus' statement, the Bible simply said, then he suffered him. John listened to the instruction of Jesus Christ, and he did exactly what Jesus told him to do. Oh, but do we need to yield to Christ in a similar way? When God makes something clear to us through his word or through the preaching of his word, and we know an area in our life in which we ought to change or to take up, let us be like John and suffer him to have his way. Let all our ideas and all our plans and all our schedules be subservient to the will of God. Oh, I can tell you it's been like that the past few weeks for me and uh, for Pastor uh, Forsberg, many of you, I'm sure, that uh, we, may, we had different plans. Didn't you have different plans a month ago for this week and for next week? And then all these plans have been put on the back burner, and yet God is in control of all these things, and so let us be subservient to him. Here you have a man that was stretched out of his comfort zone to do what Jesus said for him to do. Would to God that every one of us would be so quick to obey as John the Baptist was. This is, there's far too much today a willingness to follow the world's fads and not God's commands. And so let us not question God when he tells us what to do. Now, John did so a very short while. I don't think uh, John, it was a lack of faith in his part. John just wanted to be clarified in what he's doing here. And, and as soon as he knew that Jesus wanted him to do that, he went ahead and did it. We ought to never vet the word of God. We ought to never decide whether it's proper to obey God. I have numerous times in my ministry heard a statement similar to this. I know that's what the Bible says, but I just feel, and you can fill in the blank. And I can tell you, it doesn't matter what the rest of that sentence is. I know that's what the Bible says, period. And that's what we need to do to obey. None of our feelings... None of our ideas ever trump the word of God. We need to just be obedient to him. John did not go with his feelings here. John went with the word of God. John did what God told him through Jesus Christ to do. What if John the Baptist had refused to baptize Jesus? Think about that just for a sec. Now, when it comes to the Bible, I do not like, I'm not a fan of hypotheticals. I don't like to go into a bunch of what-ifs in the Bible, but let's just, for the sake of argument, just think for a moment, what would, have, what would be different had John refused to baptize Jesus? Oh, but a lot would have went awry there. When it comes, uh, it would have defeated the whole purpose that he was born. It would have defeated the reason that he was there. It would have thwarted the events uh, that would introduce Christ into the world. In short, it would have been catastrophic if John would not have obeyed. But so it is for anybody who refuses to obey the Lord in their life. Are you living in obedience to God tonight? Are you going your own way? Don't upset your purpose. May, you may think, as you look at this story in the Bible, now I'm no John the Baptist, and I'm no John the Baptist either. But God's mission for you is important, just like God's mission for John the Baptist was important. And it is catastrophic in his work if you refuse to do what you should do for the Lord. So I encourage you, be faithful. Do what God has you to do. Now, here's an interesting thing I'd like for you to see. We often miss this. It's found in Luke. We read it a minute ago uh, that Jesus prayed during his baptism. Did you know that? When Jesus was being baptized, he prayed. Only Luke records it. He says in verse 21 of chapter 3, Jesus also being baptized and praying. 
This is not surprising. Luke talks more about prayer than any of the other Gospels, especially the prayers of Jesus. Now, this is uh, uh, the first the first recorded prayer in the Bible by Jesus Christ. The first time we see, and we see many times throughout his ministry, that Jesus was a prayer warrior. But this is obviously not the first time he prayed, understand. But uh, praying at his baptism was a sign that Jesus had prayed much before this. The more we pray, the more we will pray. The Bible tells us to pray without ceasing. That really is talking about uh, prayer being such a part of our life that is an automatic response to everything that we're involved in. We especially ought to pray in major events of our life like Jesus did here. This was a major event in his life, being baptized, and it says that he prayed during that time. But if you're involved in anything that sets the course of your life uh, or sets the course for the rest of your, rest of your life, you'd better pray about those areas. Uh, you ought to pray about marriage. You ought to pray about Bible college or any college that you go to. You ought to pray about the career that you want to undertake. You ought to pray about uh, when, you, when you start to have children in your life. You ought to pray about these major life events as Jesus did here. This baptism set Jesus' public ministry in motion, and it's important and instructive for us to see he did not undertake it without prayer. We ought to be in prayer for all of our major uh, well, minor too, but especially the major moments in our life. Now, I want to see something interesting. There's a, a proof after the baptism. Right after Christ was baptized, look with me if you've got your Bibles in Matthew 3, verse 16. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. John the Baptist saw this. Uh, seeing the Spirit of God descending upon Jesus Christ. Can you imagine? It was be, this would be proof to John that he was indeed the Messiah. John gives testimony in John 1.33, He that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. And I saw, and I bear record that this is the Son of God. Now, it, it, you know, sometimes you have to step beyond uh, the Scripture just into looking at the context. You know, John and Jesus were cousins. John probably knew Jesus as a boy. They probably played together as young people. Uh, they probably came to family get-togethers. If you remember, the Bible says that Elizabeth, which was John's mom, and Mary, which was Jesus' mother, they were cousins or relatives, as, uh, as the Bible says. And so... Uh, they were related, they were friends, they probably played together in their boyhood. John would know about Jesus' impeccable character. Can you imagine growing up with a brother or a, or a cousin or uh, even a boyhood friend that would be perfect, that would never tell a lie? Uh, this, this would be uh, an odd thing, but here John saw absolute confirmation. God had told him clearly, if you see the Spirit descending on him, that is the one whom I have sent, that is my beloved son. And so this was confirmation for John. John now knew that this, without a shadow of a doubt, was the Messiah. There was this absolute conviction uh, for him now to prepare the way for Jesus among the people. Here's a neat truth also we see from this passage. The coming of the Spirit on Christ was proof to John the Baptist who Jesus was. 
Now, the Holy Spirit does not only give assurance as who the Savior was. The Holy Spirit also gives assurance to who the saved are. Paul said in Romans 8, 16, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Oh, I love this because God's works and God's ways are not without proof. You know what the song says, you ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. A true child of God does not, is, is never uh, at a lack of proofs uh, that God is real and that God works in his life. In fact, often uh, we, we feel that, uh, that, that, that more proof is needed to a lost world, but proof is not an antidote to unbelief. I've said that often. The Pharisees had plenty of proof who Jesus was. They saw his miracles. They saw him raise people from the dead. They heard him preach as no other had ever preached before. They knew his wisdom. They knew all this about him, and yet they still were full of unbelief. Skeptics are skeptics, not because they don't have proof. Skeptics are skeptics because they choose to not believe. That truth that is supported by, as Acts chapter 1 verse 3 says, many infallible truths are uh, backing up the truth of the Word of God. And so don't ever make the mistake of thinking, well, if we could just prove the Bible to somebody. Uh, I had somebody tell me one time that if God just showed himself, well, guess what? He did right here, and they crucified him. And uh, so we know that proof is not an antidote to unbelief. Uh, look at the proclamation after the baptism, verse uh, number 17. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We have here the complete Trinity shown at the baptism of Christ. The first person, the Father, spoke from heaven. The second person, the Son, was baptized. The third person, the Spirit, descended upon Christ in the form of a dove. The Father declared the deity of Christ. This is my beloved Son. He declared this, uh, the uh, sinlessness of Christ, in whom I am well pleased. Others would later call Jesus Christ all kinds of names. Even in John 8, 41, they called him an illegitimate son. Uh, they called him uh, horrible names. He would be called things that would depict him a terrible sinner instead of the sinless person that he was. Wicked mankind was not pleased with him. And so many times and in many ways, they said so. But the Bible says, God himself said, in whom I am well pleased. Can I tell you tonight, friend, that's what's important. What God thinks about you is so superior to what the world thinks about you. Don't live your life thinking and worrying and stressing about what those around you think. This is what really ought to matter with us. This is what is important. We live our lives so often obsessed with what others think and we don't give a passing thought to what God thinks about our actions and our thoughts. Nothing is so important in our lives as what God thinks about us. Is he pleased with your life? Tonight, friend, is he pleased with your life? It's a question that only you can answer. I can't answer it for you. Oh, you can make a good show in front of your preacher, in front of your wife, in front of your husband, in front of your parents, but uh, only God knows your heart and you know your heart. And so do you please God? Is he pleased with your life? We should seek the praise of God in our life way above the praise of others. You'll find the more that God commends us, the more that men will condemn us. 
And when God is pleased with us, few men will be pleased with us. And it's very rare that when everybody else is pleased with us, that God is pleased with us. Let us make a decision tonight, friend, that we are going to go after the uh, approval of God, not the approval of men. Wise men will be little concerned about man's approval, but they'll do all they can to seek God's approval. And I hope that's your goal tonight. I hope that that's, uh, that's you, the mission in your life, uh, if it please the Lord. I had uh, one of the, uh, the, the first pastors that I served under. Uh, we, he would, in conversation all the time, to the point that I still remember it years later, uh, he would say, uh, such and such, if it will please the Lord. If it will please the Lord, I plan to do this. If it pleases God, this is what we want to do. And he constantly had that in his vocabulary and in his mindset. And I think that it is such a valuable thing for us. We ought to live our life to please the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to, of course, not seek to uh, be obstinate to men, but that's not our ultimate goal to please people. It is to please the Lord. We see in John tonight, even though he was hesitant, he immediately obeyed when God told him, when Jesus told him to suffer to be so. The Bible says, and he suffered him. And then he saw the proof of who Jesus was. John was faithful. He had a very short ministry. Uh, he was a bright, flashing light that only shone for a little while. But in that time, he was faithful. Uh, he was more concerned about the approval of God than he was the approval of men. It's one of the things I like about John is one of the goals that I want to have for me in my life as well. Are we living to please the Lord? Uh, I hope that is your uh, desire as well. Father, we thank you tonight. Uh, for the short time that we could spend here together. We thank you for this passage and what we can learn from the examples of your servants in the word of God. And Lord, may we tonight, we can't be together. And it grieves me that we can't be together. But I pray, Lord, that you would be with each and every one that is listening tonight and, and our different church families that uh, we miss dearly when we can't see them. But yet I pray that you'd be with them, encourage them. Uh, Lord, bring health and blessing into each of our lives, and we'll give you the glory for what you do, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.